Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast. I am really delighted today to have coaxed Melissa Savage into being on the podcast. I think I may have mentioned to several of you about halfway in the recording of these podcasts, I discovered that one of the benefits of being a podcast host is that you can actually seek out and badger people into being on your podcast. So I'm so delighted for her to be here today because she's never been on a podcast before. So we're going to be so gentle with her, but mostly because she's had a really big impact as a writer on my family. And we'll tell you about that. Let me just read you her bio real quick. Melissa is a writer and a child family therapist. She's worked with families struggling with issues of abuse, trauma, and loss, bereavement. She believes that expressing oneself through writing can be very healing process when struggling with difficulties in life. In addition, it can be a vehicle in which to honor, celebrate, and continue to share the spirits of the special people who have left us too soon. Melissa lives in Phoenix. Melissa Savage, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate you reaching out to me. I'm I'm really excited to talk with you. Well, I don't know if I told you, I didn't reach out to you. I reached out to someone else's um, email first. And that finally was like, oh, I'm not who you want to be emailing, but here's her actual email address. So whatever I did was something that had happened before. So yes, then I did finally get you. Can you just tell people a little bit about what your work world is, you know, writing therapy, all that stuff, and maybe how long you've been doing it, what your passion is about it? Yeah, so I've been, I have been an LMFT. I'm a a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm also a registered play therapist. I've been doing it since 2000, early 2000s, on and off, part-time, full-time, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, I always loved writing. I tell kids, um, when I talk with kids, I started writing in second grade. I had an amazing teacher who said, we're going to write short stories. And I wrote a story and they put it in book form. And I remember having to read it to the class. And I remember holding that book in my hand and saying, I want to be a writer. Ah. But I was also influenced by a book to become a therapist. I read a story that I ordered on the Scholastic Book newsletter that comes out uh, called Don't Hurt Lori. And it was about a, a book about child abuse. And I didn't know about child abuse at that point. And I was so touched by that book that I said, I want to be a counselor. So those were two, two of my avenues that I wanted to pursue, which I did. And so as I was doing therapy, I was going to school part-time, got a, a MFA in writing for children and young adults, but I truly never thought I'd get published. You know, I just yeah. love writing. And I always knew I would write for children. And so I knew I wanted to write issue-driven books, but it wasn't until we experienced our own loss in our family that I wrote Lemons, which was my first book that I've ever written, which is Bigfoot, Tobin and Me in in the UK about loss. And it was really because, you know, of our own experience. Feel free to not talk about this, but would you be able to share what that loss was that that drove that writing? So I had a son in 2011 and he, he was, you know, we just thought there might not be something right. And we went through many months, you know, just hoping that we were wrong. And we ended up in the hospital at five months and he, you know, we just weren't sure what it was. The doctors didn't know. And, you know, many weeks we were on and off in the hospital and uh, lots of medical procedures and things like that. But in the end, he got a diagnosis that was terminal and that he wouldn't live till his first birthday. So we brought him home on palliative care hospice and, and we just loved on him until, until he left us. So, and so I was going through my own grief when I was writing. And so when I, in my bio, I say, you know, writing is a great process of healing and it is it absolutely is all art I think is just a wonderful way to get those emotions out and for me writing was was a huge healing piece of that and you know we're going to talk about grief and the process and and that kind of thing but but one of the stages of grief that uh, one particular author talks about is is honoring honoring your loved one. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote lemons and I gave the main character our son's name. And Isn't so any of this, I can't, I'm so glad to be talking to you and I'm going to cry. I didn't know any of that part of your story. That's so oh, beautiful. My goodness. I, you know, and, and, you know, it's, 
it is hard. You know, it's hard. Grief is hard. It's hard. I'm not going to sit here and say that I know how to do it. I'm an expert. I'm not. I'm, I'm working through it just like everybody else is. But I will tell you to put his name out there. And I, I do a lot of school events and I meet a lot of kids and I just hear his name all the time. Yeah. And I love it. It makes my heart so happy to oh, hear his name. So beautiful, transformative concept. And it is something that grievers talk about all the time, right? Like there are those lists out there of what to do and what not to do. Right. You know, one of them that I think is sort of, which those lists are helpful, not helpful. I think they make some people feel more self-conscious, like they're going to step in and, oh, I did the wrong thing. And I do the wrong thing all the time. So, you know, the, the notion of like hearing your loved one's name seems to be universally yeah beloved and and understood to be beloved so that just feels like what a like what a what a piece of wisdom to name your character your son's name so that you get the gift of hearing it mentioned and also I imagine as you were writing being able to sort of live qualities or ideas of what his life might have been yes yeah yeah Um you know, people, you know, they don't always know how old he was. He was nine months when he passed away. And, you know, I gave him qualities that half of me and half of, of my husband and just, just what, what we thought, you know, what we thought he might be like. So yeah. a little bit of a scientist like his dad and a little bit Bigfoot crazy like his mom. <laughs> well, just give folks, so, so I'll say it first because I've told you this story off mic, but my, when my dad died in 2017, which was, I would say the, the lesser of the two evils of losing my parents. I knew my dad was dying of cancer. He knew he was dying of cancer and I got to participate, which for me was a better way than my mom who died suddenly. But there's all this neuroscience that I talk a lot about on the podcast about, it kind of doesn't matter what happens. Your body has this way of responding and your brain has this way of responding what I call, and no one else, I've never heard anybody else. This is not scientific, but it's a bit like ringing a gong inside your brain. And so things like your hypothalamus and your hippocampus and your thalamus and, you know, are all not managing correctly. And one of the things that seems to be true for a lot of people is that they can't read. They just can't sit down and concentrate in that kind of way. And I like to tell people the neuroscience behind it because they feel crazy. And I'm like, Nope, you're not crazy. This is just a, you know, and generally for people, it settles. But for me, it was about a year before I could really read anything, maybe longer than a, a newspaper article or a, I don't read the newspaper. It was probably Vanity Fair or people or something. But we were in a bookstore at a friend in the UK at a book signing that he was doing. And my son pulled what was called Bigfoot Tobin and Me off the shelf and wanted to read it. He wanted to buy it with a gift certificate. And I was like, whatever, we, we buy books and we threw it in our basket. And that night I came home and cracked it open. And I, the other book that it reminds me of, which they are not at all the same, but is the secret garden. The secret garden is this beautiful book for people who don't know about a child who is bereaved in the first seconds of the book. And then it's deeply spiritual, oddly. I mean, it, it, it may be talking about God, regardless of how you think about it, but it's about growing, literally, it's a garden, growing into your life as a, you know, as a child. And I was just like flabbergasted by how each character is carrying their own grief and loss as a everyday event, because that's what grief and loss is. It's a, you wake up every day and it is your event and your life, how, how you demonstrated in the writing, both how they do that. And then also how they not do it, right? Like how, how it, how it breaks them down, how it impacts, but everyone, everyone, grandfather, the neighbor, the children, you know, all the children, it's just riddled across there. And I just, again, now knowing that you were actually, the book was actually your own grief process just adds another incredibly special layer to me to know. But what was that like for you to, did each character sort of identify itself for you? And you knew, I heard you say that your, your writing, that your, your MFA had writing for children in mind. And so I think some of that stuff that an adult writer when you read, you know, I've, I've read a lot of 
books that are sort of of the genre that you write. So I'm not going to call it young adults. It, it must have a better name than that. Middle, middle grade. There you go. But what I, what I think about it is that it has, it has to be much more subtle than adult writing. Adult writing has a lot of thoughts about the things, yeah. right? It would have a lot of thoughts about a child who had recently lost her mother. Yeah. And the beauty of middle grade writing is that it's devoid of that. You just this is what happened and this is how she's managing. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your characters and how they came to you and how you knew to write them. I realize we have not said the plot. Will you, you give a quick synopsis first and then answer my question. That's probably important. Yeah. Uh, So the book is about a little girl named Lemonade, Lemonade Liberty Witt, and she lives with her mom in San Francisco and her mom, she loses her mom. Her mom dies of cancer and she doesn't have family to take care of her. So she has to go down to a town called Willow Creek, California to live with a grandfather she's never met before. And she is really very much in the grief process. But yeah, you're right. All the other characters have their own grief story. And I feel like, you know, why I included that was because as we were going through it, you know, I think a lot of people will say like, why, why me? Why do I have to go through this hard journey that I'm going through? But then you realize so many people are, and we all are going to go through a grieving process, you know, whether it's divorce, loss, job loss, you know, moving. I mean, we, we go through losses through our life period. That's, that's what it is. So I wanted to give everybody a loss story so that, so Lemonade, the main character could, could feel hurt, could feel understood. Even though all our lost journeys are different, we understand loss in our own experiences. And, uh, and I wanted her to have that support surrounding her. And so I gave everyone a certain loss story. Yeah. What, what's beautiful. I mean, there's a million things that I could say about it. Cause I've read the book probably, I don't know, four or five times. I read it with a book club. I read it with each one of my kids. My youngest is reading it right now, but, but there are, there are aspects to it. You gave a beautiful synopsis. Just people should go out and get it and read it. I don't care if you have kids. It's, Part of, part of what it demonstrates is le- that like grief has anger in it, yeah. right? The, the grief has a component of anger that is a natural element of anger. And there's some beautiful scenes between the Lemonade's grandfather and her, and he's carrying some of his own grief about his relationship with the mom, which was estranged when she died. Right. And, you know, they get angry at each other and they recover But what's fascinating to me is it's very different to have adult anger and child anger. Like the beauty of what you have highlighted there is really significant and important. And it's like these two different layers to it. So I'm curious when you're in your work, like, how did you know to do that? I mean, I, you know, I have a a degree that is in child study and I studied, you know, all the developmental elements of, but I don't know that I would know how to sit and write it down. So what were your experiences that helped you formulate that, that part, those scenes? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I think one of the things we do in our work is that we're helping kiddos to have an emotional vocabulary, because if they don't have that ability to verbalize what they're going through. It comes out in behaviors or it comes out in action. And so that's, that was my, I guess that was what I was thinking of is, is the fact that she, she doesn't have a full emotional vocabulary to talk about the depth of her pain. And she not only has the loss of her mom, but the loss of everything she knows, the loss of having to move. The loss of her friends, the loss of her school, the loss of her favorite teacher. It's a lot of layered loss. And so she doesn't have the emotional words to be able to talk about that. And so it comes out in, in anger behaviors and, and the grandpa catches her, you know, that's exactly, that's the perfect word. He catches her, even though he's completely imperfect himself Yes, and that he's processing his own loss himself, which I think is so beautiful. I think, you know, that there's an element and not to stray off topic, but Melissa's written a bunch of books. The truth about Martians is another one, which is also gorgeous. And you, you, you have set these two, well, you've set 
all of your books, right? With a background of the supernatural. So Bigfoot, Tobin and Me or Lemons has Bigfoot in it. And the truth about Martians has Martians in it, which, you know, I think part of the reason I'm so grateful about the books is that my son, who is now 11, he's, he's the trickiest when it comes to loss. And my kids have had a lot of loss, but he's the trickiest. He doesn't go, he goes inward, not outward. He doesn't talk a lot about it. He sort of gives you that side eye of like, you know, why are you crying about this? So he's got a lot of internal going on. And that's another thing in your books that you demonstrate and, and almost like demonstrate it without fear, right? Parents are afraid of children when they're afraid of them, when they're playing, right. Then when they're doing the play therapy and you know, they're Bart, they're having a funeral for Barbie and parents are like, Oh my God, I need to get my kid into an office so they can talk to a therapist. And what I often say is like, no, 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 no. That's what play therapy is. Like they're resolving their conflict through the Barbie funeral. Just leave them alone. But then there's also, you know, they won't say anything to me. I'm really, you know, I'm afraid that they're quiet and I'm afraid, well, I'm just, I'm scanning the other books, but in Bigfoot, Tobin and me and in, um, Martians, both of the main characters have a really deeply isolated, alone, internal experience with their loss that you show us, which I feel like as a parent is just a really lovely thing as a child expert to show that this is okay. Like it's okay when in Martians, he goes to his brother Obi's headstone and cries and is upset. It's okay when Liberty is going through her mother's items and is wondering about her and crying and upset that those isolative things where you're sort of alone and in your own headspace are as okay for kids as they are for adults. The beauty is you don't leave them there as characters. You know, in at least these two books, they have these best friends, these little sidekicks, these quirky sidekicks, which are sort of life-saving. So can tell us a little bit more about how those formulated? Did these ideas come to you? Are you interested in the supernatural? Do you, did you, you know, do a poll of third graders and ask them what they'd most like to learn about? You asked earlier about, you know, presenting this material to children. And, and I, you know, I felt like combining really hard material and an adventure is a good way to um, present a story like that for kids. And so, so I did that with, with a purpose. And yes, I, I do like cryptozoology. I think it's kind of a fun subject matter and, and kids love it. And we talk about it when I do, do school events, but it's, it's a good way to go a little bit into the topic of grief and then come back out of it yeah. uh, because kids can't stay in there too long, you know, and also middle grade and, you know, kids books. One of the things we learned in school is, is they need to provide hope. So we can't have books be too heavy for the young reader, but at the same time to present them with materials that they're going to experience. And, you know, there's no school to tell us how to grieve. There's no, all we learn is from, from our parents and society kind of has told us all along, you know, get over it, you know, you know, don't feel it makes people uncomfortable, do it on your own, you know, kind of thing. And so I think story can be a really important way to learn that number one, you're not alone in what you're going through and it's okay to have feelings and it's okay to um, fall down and get angry and yell and cry and then, you know, get up again and try again. It's a, I mean, the point that you're making is like a super critical one. And I've been thinking a lot about this, partly because after my mom died in 2019, I mean, I, I say this all the time in the podcast, but if anyone should have been able to just recover quickly, it would be me. I literally treat people for all kinds of, you know, I would say all trauma has grief at the core and some, something unresolved. And usually there's a loss, whether it's a loss of control or safety or whatever there's, and I do mostly body centered therapies. And so I literally know the treatments, EMDR and sensory motor psychotherapy and I use IFS and brain spotting and all that stuff. So if anybody was going to be inoculated from really, truly being deeply impacted, it would be me. Now I had early childhood trauma. That was not, it was early eighties. A cousin died, uh, someone we considered a cousin and they did what they did in the eighties, which was like, never talk about it again. 
And it was deeply impactful for the adults, all of whom are younger than I am now, you know, and I have a lot more compassion for how they handled that. So I understand that when we get to the time that my mom dies, the setup for me to be really deeply impacted is, is there. Yeah. What I didn't really, because I think I was so in heavy in grief, I couldn't see past my own hands, but I really didn't understand was just how poor the rest of the population truly is at being able, now there are, the, there are those people who know what to do, but they're generally people who have had their like ticket punched by grief already to know how to show up. Most of the time, people are really concerned about how awkward it all feels. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me, because I spent last summer reading tons of middle grade books that are, you know, lots of Kate DiCamillo books and every, every offspring that she had, because that's another writer that I would say every character, there's a scrape underline. Of, I mean, I, every one of those books, I'm just like, you know, yeah, waterfall. I love her. I love Kate DiCamillo. It's, they're beautiful because again, the, the details, like in your books, the details are there. They're not the plot. They're the details. And so the concept that we are asking kids third, fifth, seventh grade to handle this conversation and somewhere from there to like age, I don't know what, 40, we stop expecting people to be able to handle these conversations. We're literally giving children these books to read with complicated features and, and we're saying, let's have a discussion about it. Yeah. We're teaching them about grief and loss. And then by the time we're in college, we're talking about all sorts of other important topics like studying economics and sociology and, but there isn't a class. And I find that fascinating. And I say it all the time that two of my kids have already gone through the puberty discussion in public school. It made them wildly uncomfortable. Like I want to go home and go to bed, mom. That was so awkward, uncomfortable. Because, you know, they give it to you a little bit before you're ready. And so it's a lot to take in, but it's because they need the information. And so where, where right now is that curriculum for all of us, particularly coming out of COVID Yeah, where we can say, you know what, I, I know what the drill is because part of what is, I think the most heartbreaking for me is when people come into my office, particularly after my own personal, you know, losses when they come in and say, I feel crazy. I am suffering because of my own ideas. People are telling me I should be over this. And, and within 10 minutes, I can say, actually, I can give you some data that you shouldn't be over. It takes much longer than what you're describing. That to you to still hear Tobin's name, even though it has been some period of time, you know, the notion that that's important and still significant to you is not surprising to you or me, but it is surprising to other people. Yes. Other people are like, really, that still matters. That was so long ago. Right. Right. And I think part of it, I mean, I think, I think part of it is well-meaning. I I feel like they want you to feel okay. They want you to be happy. They want you to be over it. They want you to be, you know, the same as you were before. I think it's David Kessler says, how long should you grieve the loss of somebody special? Well, how much longer do you have to live? Like, that's it, because they were important in your life. The healthiest way, I think, to process a a real significant loss of of a person or relationship is to honor them, you know, is to be able to talk about them, honor them with more, you know, love versus pain. And, you know, how do you get there? you know, like you said, we, we don't get a class on it. And you said something a minute ago about, you know, with the books, you want kids to be able to dip in and out and come out with hope, which I would say is, you know, you may already know this, but that that's founded deeply in grief theory and modern day grief theory in dual processing, which is just that, I mean, it's, there are a bunch of modern theories that are not the stages of grief, which make me mental. But the idea that like you're spending some time in your loss and sometimes you're resolving and you're sort of living your life. Like, yeah, that's what it is. Some of the time you are deeply ensconced in the loss. And some of that time might be 17 years after you experienced the loss. Yeah. 
the concept that the greater population doesn't really understand that and doesn't know how to approach you, right? Like, again, there are lots of other things. Like if I said to you, I have Lyme disease and I'm having a flare up, you would be like, oh, okay, I understand. That means you're inflamed. You probably need ice packs. You can't come out to dinner. You're not going to be able to eat a whole bunch of other food because you're taking your medicine. Like that takes 10 minutes to come to understand. If I said, you know what, I'm really triggered and I'm really sad, why can't the world understand to say, well, do you want to spend time alone? Because that's something that people really need in grief. Do you want me to come close? Do you want me to come over and I can just bring ice cream and you can have company? Like to to increase our vocabulary around what just are the universals? There are some cultural differences for sure across the globe. Yes. In general, the human body responds to grief in a series of ways that are not that deeply mysterious. Uh And that, you know, when you're putting people together in a room for an hour on their lunch hour to have a grief group, they all come to understand each other really quickly. The, the, I think the part of, of lemons that kills me is the teacher. So this is very early in the book. It's not clear where lemonade is going to go. In fact, she doesn't really know she has a grandfather because they've been estranged. Her, her mother and grandfather were estranged. And so for a hot second, it looks like this teacher that she loves, she's going to get to go live with her. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. And it's so early. It's like in the first 20 pages of the book, that, that to me feels like the, like the truest thing about grief ever, which is you try to not let everything break. Yeah. You try to behave as though everything hasn't been destroyed, but when you have primary loss, when something untenable that you can't live without, actually you lose it. You have to live completely different forever. Yes. And so there's this moment where it looks like she might be able to kind of piece together with scotch tape and straws, what her old life was. And then it's like, no, that's not the way this works. That's not actually what happens. And I just, I I mean, I just thought that was such a beautiful, important detail. And it's something that we talk about at, you know, in adult grief and loss a lot, which is like, you know, if you hang on to something broken, you will get splinters in your hands. Yeah. And there's, you know, just sort of that beautiful description. And she's even more angry when she gets to her grandfather's. It's like a secondary loss, even before she gets there. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, isn't that the truth though? Isn't, don't we want to hang on to something that is, you know, I, I'm guilty of that as well. You know, just like what, what could be the same? What could be, you know, it is, it's, it's, I think, one of the things I think helped me so much is, is you said earlier, we feel crazy. We feel crazy about our reaction. And I did too. And I, and sometimes I still do. I, you know why I just, that feels crazy to me. And then to hear other people are going through it too. It just, you just go, well, okay, this is the normal journey of grief and, and you ride the waves. Right. And when does it end? I, I don't think it does. It changes. It does. Yeah. It absolutely does. I, I always ask people, particularly I have a writer's uh, workshop and I always ask people in their grief writing, like, what's the analogy you like? Because I feel like everyone has found one that, and I don't think one is right. I think whatever one makes sense to you is right. The one that I like is that, you know, I wasn't a mother until my daughter was born and I will never not be a mother again. And no one has ever said to me, when are you going to go back to being the way that you were before? Do you think, you know, I, I, I never will. There will never be a moment where I am not that person. And I think grief is the exact same as that, which is when you have had a primary loss that really breaks your life wide open, I will never go back. And so I think there's, there's some tension between people who don't understand that and people who do. So I would tell you even now, still, we're coming up on two years for my mom's death. And I know that there are some people that are w- trying to wait me out that think like, oh, she's going to stop talking about all this death stuff. And it's going to, you know, she'll go back to wanting to talk about Netflix. I mean, the truth of the matter is I have always talked about all this death stuff. It has just mostly been in my office. Mm-hmm. And now I talk much more personally about my own story because that thing that you said, which is the sort of me too element of things like is the is really the biggest comfort that we have, the biggest relief that we have is to know that other people are somehow, you know, surviving out there in the world. And I, I know because I have, 
I have worked with people and heard these stories, but I, you and I know there's a difference between knowing and knowing, but the thing that people say to bereaved moms all the time is I couldn't, I would never live through it. Oh yes. Right. Isn't that what they say? I mean, yeah, it is true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I would never live through it. And yet the statistics say that moms always, they do, they live through it and they don't think they can do it either. And somehow they do. Right. And that's the extraordinary part of the story. Yes. Well, and I think it's, it's a way of, and and I've heard it said in this way too, you're so strong, you know, you, you are so strong to have gone through it the way you've gone through it and, and to do the things you're doing. And I don't feel strong. You know, I don't feel strong. There are days when I do it well and days I don't do it well. And then I always, you know, I'm graceful with another day to try again. So, so I think it's a way of, of saying that, you know, you're, I see you as a strong person. I'm not as strong as you, but you know what? Mothers do make it through. That's, that is because, because there's support out there and we support each other. Right. I mean, that's yeah. And because humans do extraordinarily hard things all the time, they do. not, yeah. not based on their intellectual thinking, but by, you know, grace or will or the support of others, but you know, that. And it doesn't have to be any one particular loss, but there are many people who have said thousands of times, I can't do this. I mean, yeah. I can't, yeah. when, when, when my mom died and I drove back to where she was, I mean, I stood outside the house for minutes and minutes and minutes because I was like, I can't go inside. I, I kept saying like, okay, I'm going to try. It was like diving off a diving board. I was like, I can't go inside there. I can't. The, the notion that people think that you call on some well of strength as opposed to you move forward, I mean, in a daze. And part of the most popular class that I teach really is this neuroscience class where I'm like, let me show you what your vagus nerve does to you so that you can survive this. Let me explain to you where disassociation comes from and why you can't really remember you know, those 20 minutes of time. Because we are built to survive these things in ways that doesn't make any sense to us for most of us, but we will at the same time. I think the notion that you survive it and then end up feeling marginalized or sort of on the outside or outskirts of your peer group or your friend group or your teachers or all of that, that's the part where it's just, you know, you do end up doubling down and it hurts in a different kind of way. I, I do say to folks like, listen, when you have a baby, when you get married, when you change jobs, you lose friends. When yeah. you grieve, you lose friends. Yeah. You know, it's a normal developmental stage. But what I do love about what you're describing is knowing that you had creative writing and that part of you all the way back from your childhood to call on, to help you with processing out this energy that I just sort of feel like is dumped out of the sky onto you. And now you have to carry it. It's like, well, how am I going to carry it? Well, I'm going to put some down on paper. Yeah. Maybe I'll talk, you know, I'll call a friend and I'll try to put some down over there. And then tomorrow I might discover I didn't put down as much as I thought I did, but there is some neuroscience about you are able, some of those frozen parts of your brain right? You, you know, this, you're able to wake them up and get them firing better again by using written language. Was that the experience for you? Did you have a morning pages writing process? Did you wake up in the middle of the night with the ideas? Like how did, how did you experience it? Yeah. You know, I, I think right after Tobin died, you know, I did all the things I knew I was supposed to do, right. I was trying to read books on grief. I did a support group. I went to therapy, you know, I, I did all these things. And one of the things, you know, like I said, I'm a registered play therapist. So I do a lot of play and kids play, like you said earlier about the Barbie funeral, like kids play out their feelings, they process through play, through toys. And I decided I'm going to do the creative, the experiential side of healing. And I found that to be, for me, that I found that to be the most helpful. Now, some therapeutic, you know, interventions helped me for sure, but it was the writing, the experiential piece that helped me the most to be able to express grief with words on a page and then to share it with other families. And of course, I love when kids say, Oh, I love Bigfoot. And I loved the story. But when I get a email or, you know, from a family that says we lost our 
you know, fill in the blank, right? Any, any family member, any friend. And we read your story together as a family. That is to me just, you know, more than I can say that Tobin is a part of that. Like that is his legacy, you know, and that is how I'm honoring him. One of the ways, I mean, I honor him in many, many ways, but that is one of the ways to be able to serve others. Right. Um, So how long ago did Tobin die? How long ago was your, it was 2012, 2012. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm thinking about David Kessler talks about this, but it's, it's across all kinds of modern grief theory, that notion of sort of traumatic growth, right? Like the idea that there's the trauma and that the trauma isn't the thing that defines you forever, that you're able to get yourself out from underneath it. Yes. And as a gift to yourself, to your family, to your son, to be able to use his name and that therapeutic energy. I I mean, I, I do think it like reflects the extent and the power of what loss is at its best, if that makes sense. Make no mistake to anyone who's listening. I will always go back and say, take the traumas off the table, please. I would prefer for them not to be there. Oh yeah. But there are things that grow out of trauma for some of us, not all of us. And it's really important to say this, that like, you know, we do lose people to complicated trauma all the time that they become addicts and shut-ins and that their life is absolutely more negatively impacted, not positively, but also your book, your books are a reflection of not only your creativity that's been there since you were little, all your education and learning that also sounds like that passion was there when you were little, but also helping you transform the own grief that you have carried. So would you say that that is also in the rest of the books? Would you say that there, you know, that that sort of theme, because I, I know that you touch on all the heavy ones and, and for people who are listening, it's not just grief and loss, that there's also child abuse that is in the, you know, you cover all the hot topics that are important for people to know about and read about and think about, but would you say that you are still sort of using this, the writing as the same tool? You know, I recently did a school, uh, a school event. Everything's on, you know, kids have the greatest questions. Like they ask you the most deep intellectual questions. And sometimes it really gets me thinking. And one girl, this class had read all four books. And she said, one of the things all your books have in common is you talk about bravery in some way, shape or form. And I thought, wow, you know, I do. I do. And I, I said to her, it caught me off guard because I've never been asked that question before. And I said, well, I feel like that's something we're all, we're all looking for. We're looking for our courage throughout our life. But it also later on, as I reflected more about her question, one of the things I have said about Tobin is how brave he was for everything he went through, all the medical stuff that, and he was just, oh man, he was just so brave. And that was the one word that I had for him. And I would love just a fraction of his bravery. And it's, I guess it's my journey of searching for my bravery in my journey, right? Like he had his bravery in his journey and I'm trying to find mine. And I thought it was really fascinating that this question came from a child. Um, It's fascinating that you just said that because on my list of things, when we read this book two years ago, my daughter's 13, when we read it with her book club, which was all little girls and their moms, one question, it was an adult question, not a kid question, was, do you think it was brave that Liberty went to go live with her grandfather? And almost sort of like not an open-ended question. The answer is yes and why. You know, that was what, and one little girl who had just moved across the country said no. And she was sort of pissed. She was like, no, what do you mean? Like to be brave is to, and, and it opened up this conversation in almost like this Brene Brown way of, and I will never forget it about, is it really vulnerability if you have to? versus do you choose it and therefore you get to be vulnerable? And I mean, this conversation, we were, it went on. I had side conversations with some of the moms about it. And so the concept, right, of like, it's hard when people say to you, you're strong. 
it maybe is less hard if they say that you're brave, right? And bravery is how you grow courage. Things are less maybe hard to imagine doing when you have done other brave things before. But this little girl was like, look, she was just doing a hard thing that she had to do. That's not bravery. It is bravery. Of course it is. Of you know, course. Of course. And, and so we were sort of like, but she could have run away. She could, ha- you know, she could have refused to participate. She could have not every moment that she continues to live yeah. and choose to befriend people and go outside and try new foods and all of that. She's being brave. Right. Right. And I think, again, when you parallel that around the idea of like, just how wired we are to survive and live. Yeah. That is the hope in there, right? Yes. Like that is the, that is the wings of the hope in there, which is you don't have to want to do it. You don't have to be happy about doing it. Yeah. You don't have to believe it's going to be good for you. I mean, one of the things I say to my clients all the time is you don't have to believe in this at all. I will believe in it for you. And you can just borrow off your trust in me <laughs> Right. Like just borrow off of me. I'm believing this for you and I'm hopeful for you because if we can't be the hope merchant that it's not always going to feel this way, people won't be able to continue to sort of foment and augment that bravery to the point of living their lives into the future, which isn't just pain and sorrow and suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one of the things I think kids teach me every day is children are so resilient. And I think there's something just innate about being a child of, of resilience. And maybe that's where she was coming from. You're just like, you know, I have resilience in me and I, she doesn't know it, you know, adults, maybe we lose that a little bit. I don't know, but I, I learn from my kiddos every day. They come into the office and I hear the stories of the things they've had to endure and and they go on and, and they don't see themselves as brave. They don't see themselves as courageous. And I see them as heroes, you know? So I don't know. Well, and that's, again, I'm thinking about the truth about Martians, which we didn't give a synopsis about this book, but, you know, just very briefly, it's about two boy best friends. One of the boys has lost an older brother, the family, you know, and is suffering in that loss still and Martians. They're not (laughs) even really Martians, but, but the, there, you know, there's the family that experiences the loss and then the best friend. And that best friend lives in real poverty with some abuse in his home. And part of what you have, you subtly write about is how powerless the parents feel about being able to do anything to help Dibs and how powerless, you know, his best friend feels who has also lost his older brother. And there are in, I think each of your books, a moment where you demonstrate the real anguish of that sense of suffering and powerlessness, right? And maybe even help helpless or hopelessness. I think it thinking about different stories of yours, but the anguish within that, and then in each one of those scenarios, they are not left alone. I mean, that's something that I noticed that there's always another character that comes in and, and you described it with Liberty, her grandfather catches her, right? That they're, that that when we think about trauma, it's when people go through those moments and then they are left to navigate that with themselves and they navigate it. Their understanding is people won't show up for me. People can't help me. You know, they have a less than experience. And in each one of your stories, those terrible breakdowns happen and they are caught or connected with someone else and they survive in connection. Well, I think, I think those breakdowns are very real for, for experiencing grief of any kind. And, and we've all been in where, where the breakdown is so harsh. You don't think you're ever going to breathe again. And, and one of the metaphors I use in lemons or Bigfoot Tobin and me is quicksand. She feels like she's sinking in feeling quicksand, uh, sadness, quicksand, but isn't, you know, Charlie is her grandfather or dibs is the friend. Don't we all want that person? who can catch us when we're deep, deep, deep in that grief. And we'll come out. We do come out. We always come out. But when you're in it, it, it feels so heavy. And, and what you hope is to have those special relationships. Not everybody can do that for you. And you learn that, right? You learn that as you experience grief and you reach out to your friendships and your family. And not everybody can do it. Not everybody can, but there are some very special people who can, and they're with you and they catch you in that deep grief. 
And yeah, what's beautiful in those moments though, both with Charlie and with Dib. So for listeners, we're talking about the two different books in with Charlie, it's a risk that he takes to go to her because they have not, they are not that that is the intimate moment that sort of helps them trust each other. There are some, some others, but really it's the going close that sort of seals the intimacy and maybe less so with dibs, but to some degree, a little bit like that, you know, then that it's only the two boys that are able to talk about the suffering around his loss of his brother and dibs can see him and says that. And I think that, I think they have a secret language that is partly, you know, the intimacy around understanding the loss. And so when people ask me that question, of, you know, what do I do? My sister, cousin, brother, whatever has, is going through this profound loss and I don't know what to do. What I say is nobody ever knows what to do. Right. You know, you wanting them to not have this, you have to hold on to that for yourself and right. just go, go close with whatever is authentic to you. Yeah. So if you go close with something that, you know, you, you, you're going close with a prayer book and you know, that prayer is not their way that, it's authentic to you, but you're not going for them. You're going right. for you. Yes. So go close with something for them. Yes. And something for, I mean, I remember a really a woman who's a dear friend of mine. So it's not a surprise. She sent me like, you know, these pale pink Adidas sneakers when my dad died. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you know, sneakers are great. I know you love sneakers. And then, you know, she was like, I don't know what to do and this won't help, but sneakers are great. And yeah. I was like, yeah, no, that is. Yeah. Well, and I'm, you know, I just saying, I don't, I don't know what to do for you and I don't know what to say and I'm going to say and do the wrong things, but I still want to be here for you. That's everything. That's everything. And there's, there's actually a scene in the truth about Martians where they're like, they go to the cemetery and they're talking about death, which I think is something that children think about, you know, but maybe don't verbalize and worry about and don't verbalize. And here they actually, you know, a young person has died, his brother has died. And so Dibs says to him, Dibs is the friend and the main character is Milo. And Dibs says, the first person I want to meet in heaven is Obi. And I wrote that because a friend of mine told me that. One of those friends who catches me when I'm, you know, and I thought it was the sweetest thing I had heard. You know, of course you get, I'm sorry for your loss and you get all these wonderful things that people mean to want to help you. You know, you're strong, you're, you know, all those kinds of things, but it was so, I don't know. It just was so heartfelt. Um, and so I put it in the book and mm-hmm. then I sent her the book and I, I highlighted that page and I said, this is you right here. This is- <laughs> Well, and that's, you know, when people are really, really lost about what do I do and how do, how do I show up? And, you know, I'm, I'm so overwrought with this and I'm so heartbroken. I, I will say, who else do you know that has ever been through a loss? Can you call them, call them and ask what helped them? Yeah. You know, I, I have had other people since I t- have told the pink sneaker story, tell me that they have done sort of one-off weird things. Like, you know, you said that. So I sent a basketball for her son because I just thought like, you know, he might want a basketball yeah. that being able to say, we don't have to reinvent this, that we can show up even with something weird, but it is, it's informed by some other piece of information. And the concept of like letting kids talk about what it is that they think and feel is so healing actually also to adults, right? Like hearing how, hearing how a kid thinks about these things or hearing how they, you know, are, are not, I did a podcast with my kids a couple of weeks, about a month ago that will air in a little while asking them about what it was like for them at my father and my mother's funeral, partly because I had terrible PTSD after my mom died and I did some inpatient work and it was really hard to be like, I'm going to leave my kids here. The things that I feared that they would feel are not what they felt. The things that I wasn't even tracking, like I had a big fight with one of my sisters and to them, that was the most traumatic moment because they've never seen me have a fight before with someone. And I was like, oh, well, it's because you haven't known me. I mean, we fought like I was 13, like that was normal for the rest of us. But being able to let them you know, express the, ask them those questions. And, and one of the things I ask kids all the time 
is like, what do you want me to know about your feelings? What do you, you know, what should I know about your feelings today? Like any, any highs or lows, anything big or small, but I really like doing that with adults too. And I really like being asked that because, and my, my husband taught me this. He early on, and we were just dating, he lost a friend to cancer. His friend died, not wholly unexpectedly, but you know, obviously he was really young. We were in our twenties and it was pretty devastating, but my, but my husband's from England and his friend was in England and my experience with them and their friendship was very limited. So one day my husband, who's a very even keeled person was pretty irritable. And I was like, what is wrong with you? And he was like, you know, I think I'm just really thinking about Alex today. And it was like, my mind exploded. If you had given me a thousand things to wonder, I would never have asked that question. Could this be about Al? Even if he was in my therapy office, I'm not sure I would have known to ask that question. And I think when we're encouraging kids to talk about it, we're sort of helping them grow up into the adults who are going to be in touch with those concepts and ideas. Right. And I really am just sort of mystified as to like, what age do we stop thinking it's okay to read and talk about this stuff, stop supporting it in educational situations. And then we come back around and start writing these books and texts and, you know, for people to hand to each other in loss, because in my mind, every college should have a grief and loss course that has some basic curriculum because we're all headed in the same direction and it would help. It would help. And where do you get coping skills? You get it by modeling, you know, modeling what what your parents have showed you. And sometimes that's not enough. And I can't remember what book it was that I read. And they said more people have like first aid training. Like you you have CPR training, you have first aid, you have, you know, if if someone broke their arm, you, you know a little bit what to do. You get them to the doctor, you know, whatever, but there's no, there's nothing on coping. Yeah. It should be, you know, it should be in the schools. It should be included growing up. It should be in the college. I don't, yeah. I mean, there should be something about adjustment, about yeah. coping, about grief and loss, just because, just to prepare us. Even the concept that grief and loss, and it's honestly, it's the heart of this podcast, that the idea that when you have gone through a profound loss and suddenly you find yourself wanting to exercise more wanting to sleep more, wanting to paint more, wanting to pull out your violin that you haven't played since you were 20, to understand that grief is a mother load of energy inside your body's system that needs to be moved through you in some sort of way. Like just that concept alone, when I say that to people, they're like, wait a second, I didn't know that the fact that I was like coloring or, and generally I have this menu where I'm like, just pick one. The first one that looks like something you can do good enough. We'll try it. Yeah. And we'll see if that helps because I think what we get a lot of is like, well, you should be meditating. And I mean, what's fascinating about grief group books and I'm the outlier here. I read 88 of them after I came out of treatment with my mom. Most people can't read. Yeah. Most people's brains are not ready for a book. So when people say to me, you know, Hey Megan, what, what book would be helpful? What I usually say to them is nothing will be helpful for three months. Don't give them a book for three months. It could be six months. It could be a year, but there are a bunch of podcasts they could listen to, or there's a bunch of TV shows, or you could just say, I could come over or I could leave you alone. I do just really wonder about why we don't teach this. And honestly, I mean, I'm a social worker in training. I was not required to take any grief and loss bereavement class. I had to take one that was specific because I was in the district to AIDS, to working with AIDS patients, but I did not have to take any. And at that point, many more of them were dying than living when I was getting my license. And so it it had a tilt on it that was about grief and loss, but all the grief and loss training I've done is not... It is not a professional requirement. So even when we say to people, oh, I, you know, I went to go see a therapist. It's like, well, if your therapist specializes in anxiety, do not assume that they're going to know how to show up for you any better than your grandmother around your loss, which I think is kind of humbling. And I don't know about you, but I couldn't get anyone. I couldn't get my best friend in to see a therapist right now. I couldn't get anyone's kid to see me right now because the lines are so long. And I feel like 
right? With the, yes. with the amount of loss that we have right now, the word I keep using, cause I grew up as in, in church is like, we need lay servers. We need everybody to be, if you're not in loss, you go buy the books, yeah. you go read all the books because we need everyone, employers, HR departments to be able to show up like 50 to 75% better than they were because the people returning to your workforce, to your campuses, to, you know, out into your churches, everybody's carrying loss. I mean, it may not be the loss of a loved one, but they are, they are grieving. Oh, for sure. The pandemic has been, been a different kind of loss, a loss of so many things, so many things. And when, you know, I was just talking to my mom about, we were talking about this, about when the pandemic hit and we couldn't read, why could we, you know, you have all this time. And I thought, oh, well, okay, I'm going to read these books that I are on my to be read list. You couldn't read, you know, and she was saying the same thing. And so it's the same kind of thing. There was a loss there. And, and so, yeah, I didn't get the, the list done that I thought I was going to, but, you know, I think the, big thing is giving yourself the grace to go through what you need to go through and understand what your body, what's happening in your mind and your body and, and honoring it, you know? Yeah, it's the absolute truth. And I, you know, I really am hopeful that this podcast, other podcasts, your books, you know, the people we're doing, we're doing small efforts that are hopefully a big wave that people will be able to turn to. Are you writing now? Do you have something that, yeah. Yeah, I have my fourth book came out last January. And that one is a, the main character has anxiety. She has anxiety. And then there's also sort of a ghost, ghost hunting mystery. But I'm writing a book right now about a treasure hunt. And what happened during the pandemic was that my husband was actually diagnosed with um, cancer. And so we were going through that during the pandemic, which made the pandemic harder because of the restrictions and things. So it was, it was hard to navigate around that. And so I wrote about what it was like to go through the process of cancer. I'm not writing about the pandemic, but I am writing about the, the medical piece of it. Wow. Is that also a children's book? It is. It's a middle grade. It's a middle grade. And it's not the husband who has it. It's another character. But, you know, again, writing, writing has been an outlet for me, you know, it's right there. It's like a handrail each time. For me, it is. What is your husband's health like right now? He went through chemo and radiation. He had surgery um, and he is cancer free. Um, So yeah, it was, it was a rough year, but, but he made it through. He made it through. He did it. I'm, I'm really grateful to hear that. I'm really yeah, we are too. Yeah. That, wow. You, you have had quite a year then. There's a phrase that I think about all the time, which is like, you know, the things you wouldn't know just by looking at her. Right. Which is true of everyone, right? Like the, it is true of everyone. It is true of everyone. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that with us and our listeners. And I'm really grateful to hear that his health is more stable and God. And I'm really glad that you have writing as an outlet. I'm glad you always had it. I I had not been a writer before. I mean, I had, I had when I was younger and it just was, you know, it fell away and it has popped back up since. And I'm really grateful because it, you know, the words are helpful to me and sometimes to other people, which I'm also grateful for. If people are interested in, you know, doing book clubs, having you come to their schools and learning more about your writing, finding out when your next book is coming out, what's the best way for them to be in touch with you or find out more? Yeah, I have a, a website. So it's melissadsavage.com. And I have all my books listed there if they want to look a little bit more about that. And my email's on there if, if teachers want to reach out to me about doing a, um, a class visit or a school event. I do a lot of those during the year. So email me. And if they email you without the D, they'll get a very lovely architecture student who will forward on your correct email, just so people know. I'm incredibly grateful for this conversation. I'm so honored that you did your first podcast with me. I am just really personally grateful for your books. They are beautiful in a way that, you know, I'm a big reader. I used to be a teacher. There are a few gorgeous 
writers out there that are giving us something that isn't already on the shelves. And I just feel like your books are incredibly special. And, and I just, I hope even folks who are not, who have little kids or older kids or never going to have any kids, go, go find the books anyway. I, they are really, they're, they're healing. They're like really healing. And I'm, I'm grateful that you put the words there. And I know being a writer that hearing those, hearing that from someone, a fan is meaningful. So just know that our household is a very big fan. It's, we have like, I don't know, 12 copies in a box and we give it out regularly as a, (laughs) as a gift to people. And, and yeah, so my, I promised my son, I would ask why is it called lemons here? And why is it called Bigfoot Tobin and me in the UK? Yes. So lemons. So it's really about that old adage, you know, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade and lemons means problems. And I think a lot of kids know when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. They kind of know the concept, but they don't really know it literally, I guess. And so lemons really means problems. We all get lemons in our life. And um, on the cover, actually, the illustrator of the Lemons book put lemons over Lemonade's eyes to depict that in the beginning of the story, all she can see are her lemons. And towards the end of the book, she sets the lemons aside, which I thought was a really beautiful, gorgeous illustration. So, so that was published with Penguin Random, Penguin Random House's Crown Books for Young Readers. Okay. But a publishing house in the UK called Chicken House Books also purchased it and wanted to share it with the UK kids. And they said lemons means something different there. And it's a yep. little derogatory. It is. So, yeah. yeah. So they wanted it something different. And so we talked about some different ideas and they, they liked Bigfoot Tobin and me the best. And that's what they went with. He's going to be very grateful to hear this answer because that, that is sort of what he guessed. Okay. So that's, that is, uh, uh, he'll be very grateful that he not only got it right, but also that there is an answer that is. Yes, there is. There was. <laughs> we are going to look out for your next book, Melissa Savage. Thank you so much. This really was just my complete pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I so appreciate being invited and, and I love talking about, you know, I love talking about this subject and, and just making it okay for people to be in it when they need to be in it, you know? And, and so I appreciate having this conversation with you, but um, we'll just just stay in touch. Thank you again. I am really, really grateful. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.